Hello, you are listening to The Power of Investing in People with Shay Sparks. I had the honor of being on the show with Shay and wow, how authentic she is and how much I know that she wants to keep hope alive in the community. So thank you all for joining. And everyone here today, I'm offering a special to all active duty or retired military to my all access on-demand training where we learn how to dream, believe, and achieve our best life. Please visit at timlanefitness.com and I'll see you all soon. Enjoy the show. From the National Guard to becoming a Lieutenant Colonel in the Air Force, Erica King shares her journey to receive her doctorate while facing challenges that couples with dual enlistment experience. We were able to get some laughs in as we share about leadership, challenges, and the under-asked questions in the military. Stay tuned for her inspiring story. Welcome to the Power of Investing in People podcast. And today, my guest is the incredible Lieutenant Colonel Erica King. So welcome to the show, Erica. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful for you having me. Well, first of all, I thank you for being here. I know you're super, super busy and just want to give a shout out to our friend, mutual friend, Beth Collins, for introducing us. We, what did we just say two years ago now? Yeah. Gosh, yeah. gosh. Well, I am so uh, happy to be connected to you and happy that you're here today. So for our audience, why don't you tell us who you are and what you do? Sure. So my name is Erica King. Um, I am a social worker in the Air Force. I have been for about 20, well, I've been in the Air Force for about 22 years. That's where I met Beth. We served together in the Illinois Air National Guard. Um, and I came on active duty as a social worker in 2006. So I always say in advance, because I'm identified as an Air Force officer, um, the views expressed are mine and uh, are not reflective of the Department of Defense or the United States Air Force. Um, but job. yeah, so <laughs> I've been doing social work in the Air Force since about 2006. Um, I've done everything from being a provider to running clinics to being a consultant. Um, and now they, they sent me to school a few years ago when I was going through a difficult time and looking at getting out. And so now I do, um, some work in policy analysis and recommendations affecting service women. Wow. 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 So, so many things I can't wait to dive in. So I always like to start off with the first question of what does investing in people mean to you? For me, it's understanding who the people are. So offering my time to know what their intents and goals are and figuring out how to amplify their strengths. That's my big investment and um, instilling hope. Mm. Mm, I love that instilling hope. And you said that you work with uh, you're in social work and that you're working primarily with women in the air force now. Um, So I do two, I do three different roles. So I do, um, one day a week in the clinic where I see people who are um, self-identified for having some struggles and are looking for help. Um, so one day a week I do that because that's my bread and butter. That's why the Air Force hired me. And I feel like if I'm going to be a consultant, then I need to know what it's like to be a provider still. Um, so I do clients one day. I see clients one day a week. I um, now teach um, a couple days a week. So I teach master's students who are working on their master, their um, 
master's in social work degree, and they're all going to be Army or Air Force officers, which is super exciting. Um, And then I, on the side, because I am just really passionate about the area, I do research and policy consultation related to women's issues, service women's issues. Mm, So tell us about that, that last one. Sure. So um, in... So my journey towards that, I um, came in single, no dependents. I was like the ideal lieutenant for any leader because I had <laughs> no dogs, no boyfriend, no, um, uh, and the ideal tenant for my landlord. Right. <laughs> by, the time that, by the time that I left that, that first house, I had a husband, a stepdaughter, and two dogs that dug all over the yard. So um, my journey changed right in my people, my clients, um, and my life changed. And so um, the first assignment looked like that. And then the second assignment, my husband deployed and we were pregnant and I had our first baby mm-hmm. and um, he came back and I had our second baby and I was still working really hard. I was running a clinic. I was a community organizer and I was a provider and I was really struggling to honor my values in how I perform for all of those clients in my life. And so I was going to get out. I joke and say that like the Air Force and I went on a break. Only I knew about it. And I was like heavily into the VA for a little while looking at options to see if we could stay where we were stationed and put down some roots because I was struggling. And um, at the same time, a call came out and said, we did not have very many people apply this year for the PhD program. It's a fully funded PhD to the institution of your choice. If you get selected, you keep your pay the entire time. Um, do you want to do it? And I told my husband, no, I'm going to get out. And he was like, you've been saying since I knew you, this is what you wanted to do. Mm. And I was like post second baby and a little hormonal and maybe a little angry with the air force. And so I said, (laughs) um, well, I can apply and always just tell them no. Right. (laughs) Right? (laughs) You don't have to accept it once they offer it to you. Right. (laughs) that period, there was a lot of complicating stuff happened where his um, boss was not supportive and did not give him his paternity leave after my son mm-hmm. was born. And my son had to rehospitalize because he had some complications and I was running, I was on medication and couldn't transport him. I didn't have other social support because like many military families, our family of origins or our support systems aren't nearby. Right. And so I just said, they can't handle us. Like we're both in the military. We have two young babies and a blended family and they can't handle us. And I'm ready for a breakup. And um, by applying for this, I could potentially talk my way out of this breakup that I think is needed. So long story short, I applied and I got accepted and um, the Air Force sent me to the University of Texas at Austin and um, my husband down here in San Antonio and he stayed active duty and I stayed active duty, but my full-time job was to be a PhD student. And so during that period, I was like, what does the Air Force want me to study? And I'm a, I can be a people pleaser if I don't check myself because I'm always looking at the clients to see what they want from me sure. uh, and trying to do what I think is best. And um, so for the, you have three years to finish a four-year program when you get selected. And so the first semester I focused on trauma because I thought that's what the Air mm. Force wanted me to study. And that's what I'd done as a provider. And I found myself over that first break looking in my data at different things like dual military couples and retention decisions and um, what gets, what influences women's retention decisions. And so I shifted my dissertation, giving myself only two and a half years to finish. (laughs) And um, 
I finished my PhD and I still do research in that area and I still do policy and, and program consultation in that area. Wow. So what a beautiful journey. Thank you for sharing that. So now I'm, I'm curious. So what is, what have you found about uh, women retention into the military? So the, the biggest thing I realized was that my stressors weren't unique and I should have understood mm. that better. But when I looked up, I didn't see many women leaders who had families. And so I thought, well, there's just not a path. And what I found was our families look different as women in the military compared to service men. So of those that are married across the Department of Defense, almost half of married women have an active duty spouse. Wow. Less than 10% of married active duty men have a uniformed spouse. So dual career issues are unique to us. I didn't know that. Wow. <laughs> I wouldn't have known that either. Wow. Yeah. So it's just a really unique, like that means that every time I move, so I, my husband is no longer active duty because after my PhD, I started living my research and in that they said, we want you to go to Colorado Springs and be the flight commander there. It's really good for promotion. And we contacted his, uh, he was a hospital administrator and they said, oh, we don't really have a spot for you. So if you'll just stay in Texas, we'll try to get you guys together in a year. Wow. And we were like, man, it just doesn't feel right. Like, I don't trust it. He'd already deployed twice. And we talked about what we were willing to navigate versus where we would kind of cut bait. And mm -hmm. so we cut bait and he got out and it was really hard. Um, so that's one issue that I, I talk about a lot is there's an assumption in the system that you have a, a spouse at home who's going to pack up the household goods, mm. that there's a spouse at home that's going to handle when the kids are sick. But that's not true for military women, and it's increasingly not true for millennial men. True. So the traditional system and, and its effects on retaining a modern force or, or areas. The other one is um, unmet child care need is an area that I still work in quite a lot. So of new moms compared to new dads on Air Force active duty, new moms have twice as many unmet child care needs as new dads. Why is that? We have considerably fewer stay-at-home fathers. Mm. And so unmet childcare needs are managed in different ways. And for dual career couples, you, you end up having more needs. And, and across the Department of Defense, we have issues with wait lists and um, getting kids in, even though we have affordable care in a lot of places. So those are two main areas. And you talked about so many amazing things. I just am kind of want to pull out of there like, so as a dual uh, enlisted active duty members of the Air Force, you're looking at where do I, how do we, how can we keep our family unit together and able to move where they want us to go? So your husband chose to stay at home and I, right, he, not stay at home, but he chose to, to leave the military to end his, his career <laughs> and, and was that decision harder than the actual what's next for him or what's next for the family? Or was it just really more like he's now have to decide to just leave or was it all very hard, difficult decisions? It, they were all interrelated, but uniquely difficult. So the, cause it's like a domino effect, right? Yeah, so exactly. You decide we're going to pull cord and get out and he'll follow me because what happened after, so statistically, when you have dual couples, the woman is much more likely to get out. 
But because sure. I had just finished my PhD, I had a five-year payback. I couldn't get out. Wow. Because they paid for it. Sure. And so, um, you know, we had talked about in advance, gratefully, like what, what are we willing to tolerate? And we mm-hmm. had said one more deployment and we'll pull chalks for him. Um, we were not willing to be stationed separately if we could avoid it. Um, and so because we had talked about all that advance, it seemed really straightforward, but it was still a really emotional, difficult decision because he had been in for 18 years total. He was prior Marine Reserve before he came commissioned to the Air Force. And so um, he had a lot of history too. Sure. Um, but he has an MBA. And so he's set up in unique ways. Um, unfortunately, at our first assignment, the job market, really difficult to penetrate. Mm. And so that transition, like for many veterans, was was really difficult. We thought it would be an easier, you know, you've got however many years of hospital administration experience and an MBA. We'll just go to the next place and you'll get a job there. Wasn't that straightforward. Hmm. And so um, he ended up uh, day trading. Um, he's, he's very interested in the stock market. And so he found ways to kind of grow and maintain a, a personal um, and financial goals and things like that. But once we got, we only were there for two years in that assignment and they moved me early to come back to be a research chief here in San Antonio. And um, he had a job lined up before we landed in Texas. Mm, So very different experience, different job markets um, that you don't really have control over where you're going. So you just play the hand you're dealt. Do you find that, speaking of play the hand you dealt, so do you find that women have a tendency to take more on, not just being in the military, but also as a mother, a wife, um, more than, and I'm going to stereotype this, but more than men do because they're just, their natural tendencies is just different. Yeah. I think tendencies is part of it. And and I don't um, intend to to generalize beyond myself or kind of very broad statistics. I don't mean to speak to the middle, but um, my, the, the, the values I have towards being there as a wife and a mother are such that I feel it's going to sound extreme to say, but it's true during that one period where I was going to get out, I felt distressed Mm. and I don't, I have not experienced fathers that I've worked with experience that to the same degree or, or feel comfortable discussing it if they did. Mm. Um, so it may be that they do but that it's less, less discussed. Um, I was going to make another point with regard to, oh, (laughs) and when we lived in Colorado, right? So my spouse is available. Does the school call him? No. Wow. They still call me. Like, (laughs) so call mom. Right. Wow. I would correct them repeatedly, but there was something just sort of ingrained in the system of who they expect to respond to these things. That it was very difficult for me to say, I run a clinic. Mm. I'm seeing patients. I can't, I can't walk away from a client to pick up my sick kiddo, but my husband is glad to please call him. Right. Right. So it was just a very odd. um, I think it's a mix of, of expectations that are pressed upon not just service women, but all women and also some sort of um, internal impulses. So now are you able to like be able to um, advise and kind of help direct 
other women into having that conversation with their their spouse and also with the, the people around them, like you said, the schools and things like that, and, and really make it a, a point to say, I'm not able to leave my career at, or, you know, leave my job at the moment, but however, my husband is available. Do you really help women now shift that kind of mentality, that mindset? Yeah. I mean, I, I do in my mentoring practices, I talk to, um, plenty of young social workers coming up and I do, um, you know, work on assertive communication with therapy clients, but where my passion is, is I'll get, um, commanders that'll have a survey that comes back that shows that people feel like there's differential treatment and they don't know what to do with it. Mm. And so they'll assign a captain or a major, usually a female in their unit to say, can you sort this out for me? And they go and gather their resources and somehow my name will come up and I'll have a conversation with them and I'll later get their slides or whatever from their briefing to their commander. And I'll learn that like they put in a lactation pod for breastfeeding moms and um, the commander is doing a training to train all of the supervisors in his command that you need to expect that they have a working spouse, every person in your unit, you need to afford equal opportunity don't because that's another thing that can happen is because of expectations that women have uh, more roles to navigate they may get fewer op- opportunities for mm-hmm. a special trip that they might want but they get assumed to not be available sometimes with some of the feedback on the last consult that I did and so training their leaders to um, have conversations rather than assume people's availability and desire um, just talk before you decide for people, those Mm. kinds of things, that kind of intervention where I get to empower a person who's being a consultant to a commander who will affect the well-being and dynamics across an entire unit is just really exciting. Mm, I love that. I love that. And I, and I love how you talked about values and, uh, and the other thing that you just said about, it was assuming. So I just did a leadership program um, for senior enlisted officers in the Air Force, actually, last week. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we talked about was leadership values. And you had mentioned values several times. And so do you feel as as a woman, do you have different values as a wife, as a mother, as a woman, than say your career and leadership values? Help me understand that question one more time. Yeah. So as a leader, you, you show up in a, in, a, in a certain way or you want to show up in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And so we get to choose, right, how we show up in that particular way. And sometimes it's completely different than how we show up at, a, at home as mm-hmm. a woman, how we show up as a wife, how we show up as a parent. Men have a tendency to kind of stay across the board in their, their values all the way across the board. Women, I feel, and correct me if I am wrong in your, your conversations and your, your research, is that women have a tendency to kind of go back and forth. They're a leader and they're this way, but then at home, they're this way. Yeah, that's a really great question. And I would say I have evolved to be more consistently authentic, Mm. right? So I started in a place where I grew up in a masculine culture. I've been in the military since I was 17 years old. And so you don't show emotion. You don't, I mean, there are certain things. Anger is preferred over emotion. Yes. So I can probably hyphenate curse words better than most. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But I don't do that as much anymore. (laughs) Because, um, but the other is that I figured out how to be authentic in both roles. So Mm. when there's a problem, whether it's my kid's problem or my husband's problem or my boss's problem or my, my radies problem or my client's problem, 
I want to know what their view of it is. I want to know what they think are potential solutions. I want to talk to them about how those do or don't fit in their values and their role. And I want to help them come with a conclusion that works for them. And so I've been trained to come in, in that more um, sort of hierarchical masculine system that you have to have all the answers. And I have evolved to understand that I just don't. Mm. I love and that's that. okay. Yes, absolutely. I love that. I think as leaders, quote unquote leaders, we have to have people feel like they have to have the uh, answer. They that the expectation of a leader is having a solution, which brings me to expectations is a lot of times assumptions. And you, you know, we know what happens when you make assumptions, right? You make an ass out of you and me. And so I've had that, I had that conversation with allowing the leaders to really say, how do I want to show up and how do I want to eliminate expectations of people of me? And when I say expectations, I'm like, you might as well just cross that out and write assumptions. Mm -hmm. Right. And so Mm -hmm. you, what you just said, and I don't know if you know that you said it, but I picked it up immediately because it's just such a, a way that a method, methodical way that you explain the structure is that really you're asking about how they process the information and empowering them on the solution rather than giving advice or giving your opinion to the solution. Yeah. Yeah. And even when I, cause sometimes I'm asked direct advice, mm-hmm. should I do this or should I not? Right. I will usually give both answers and I always preface it with like, you're going to hate me for this. I know that you want me to just give you the right call, but here's how I think A could work out well or poorly. And here's how I think B could work out well or poorly. And only you are going to live with the results of either of those. Yeah. And so which one, how are you feeling about both of those? Which one feels authentic and in line with your values and how does it sit? Absolutely. And I love that you talk about the feelings because I think we all have that kind of, um, a knowing, an energy that shows up in your body. You know, we talk about feelings a lot of times as, or in prior to my life, feelings were, like you said, masculine. No, we don't talk about feelings, but really it's not just feelings as heart. Like, do I love this or hate this? Feelings is how is that showing up in your body? Is it feeling right? Uh, Is this a gut instinct of do not go forward? Mm -hmm. You know, and I love that you're, uh, you're really having that conversation about the feelings. So have you found that people are not willing to talk about feelings? I think people are under asked and Mm. I find them very eager, right? So my husband jokes and he's totally right. Like you can't take me to a, a place and expect me to have a superficial conversation. I'm horrific at it. I can remember as a lieutenant getting a feedback. I was dating him at the time and I was getting a feedback from this high level superior and she's supposed to be mentoring me, right? And in the middle of the thing, unknowingly, because I don't have great insight at this level of my, you know, (laughs) maturation as an officer or as a clinician, I said, I noticed that you have a a very large wedding ring. Um, Are you, (laughs) are you married to someone in the military or not, Mm -hmm. or or a civilian? And she said she was married to someone in the military. And I said, can you tell me about your journey (laughs) together? 
I love it. I love it. Yes. Yes. Because I'm thinking about my journey and I'm trying to connect and understand, is it one that I would want to emulate and how might I do that? And that's the mentoring I wanted, right? I don't want to know to do these classes to be promotable. That didn't matter to me because if I couldn't Mm. have the family life that I wanted, I wasn't going to do those anyway. Mm. Right. Because I was pretty sure this was the guy. So that was the conversation I needed in the moment. Um, So I I don't know how to... how to edit myself when I'm excited (laughs) to know about something. And she talked to me for a half an hour about what I needed, but that's because I'm forward and I'm a trained therapist. And I ask really um, sometimes could be construed as inappropriate or forward questions. And I think when others are asked that they are surprisingly willing to have that conversation. Mm. So speaking of that, or do you think that it's, you said it's under asked, so is a men getting that same question of how is it that you're feeling about this versus women? Or do you think it's really just not asked across the board? I think we ask around it, right? Okay. So you hear things like, well, which one are you drawn to? Mm. Um, or, uh, but there are, we used to, to joke in one of the clinics that I worked with because one of our therapists would say, I never ask men to journal. It just turns them off. So I asked them to, to keep a, a spreadsheet, right? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and for that provider, it authentically worked and he was reaching his clients and that's fine. But I think like, I think we should be pushing to journal more. I'm not going to assume that each one that shows up next isn't, isn't into it. Um, Cause I think that some might be more than we give them credit. Yeah, And some women may be turned off by it. If I grew up in the system and you asked me at five years in when I was an enlisted tech, I probably would have been like, "Mm, it's too Philly for me. You lost me. You know, right. And and truthfully, there are moments in my my life I would never have journaled, but I've been doing it for 20 years. I interview, you know, tons of people. And I'm surprisingly, it's it's funny to me of how many men actually do journal. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I just uh, had a, had a interview with a, a former and um, NFL player and he's like, I journaled everything, including like my honeymoon. And I was like, wow, <laughs> that's, in, it, it, you know, like in depth of conversation. Wow. He's like, but the reason for journaling that I love that I think people are missing the point of journaling is that you can get to go back and go, wow, how much have I grown in the last year, the six months, or even five years, you know, if you keep them long enough. Yeah. Yeah. We, um, we had a, when my husband was deployed, when we were thinking about getting engaged, we had been dating and the military makes you marry fast or they'll move you to a different place. And so we dated six months, he deployed six months and then we looked, we got engaged right after. And um, while he was deployed, we got this book that I'd seen on Oprah called the hard questions. Mm -hmm. And so we would mail that book back and forth. And so for me, it is such an interesting snapshot of our life because he was deployed. Like so much was different compared to now, but also so much is the same. And I think it's almost like we have this, this, I don't feel accountable to it, right? Like if I changed my mind on what kind of pet I wanted, whatever, but it's an interesting conversation, right? Mm -hmm. That why did we stray from that? Was it intentional? Is it in line with our values? How, how is it sorted out for us? Do we want to see if it would make sense to veer back that way or not? Mm. So I love that you guys mailed that book back and forth. (laughs) And it just makes me wonder as you're talking to both male and female officers, are they, 
are they being asked the same questions? For an example, women, I believe, are probably asked about what their roles are, what their husband's doing, things like that. When the man is asked, are their significant others considered when they're looking at like career goals and things like that? Very often, no spouses are reasonably considered, Mm -hmm. which ironically means that women, I say women on both sides of the coin are left out. Because for women who are in, they are disproportionately dual career. Mm -hmm. So if we don't consider their spouses, they're left out. For men who are in, their wives are disproportionately under or unemployed. Mm. They desire to have careers, but they are unable because of constant relocation, childcare gaps, deployments, things that they're filling. So... It's interesting to me, like when I think about including spouses and the degree to which we depend on them, I see it as a readiness issue. I see it as a national security issue and that disproportionately women are carrying the weight of. Wow. But I think that the questions are being asked. It's just affecting people in different ways. Hmm. And I don't think it's asked around feelings. Primarily, we have something called a family care plan. Do you have somebody who's going to take your kids if you get deployed short notice? And the only people that have to have those are dual military in the Air Force. The Marine Corps is different. In the Air Force, the only people that have to have those are dual military and single parents, disproportionately women in both of those categories. Men have spouses who have careers. How can you be certain that they're available to take care of their children if they deploy? I've worked with people whose wives are CIA agents, right? Like I, they, they have real careers right, <laughs> that should right. be considered. Right. Um, so I think the questions are the wrong questions mm-hmm. and the impacts are disproportionate and um, that it would take really big muscle movements to meaningfully change that, right? Like the system would have to be vastly changed from what we understand it to be now. And I don't even know what it would look like. <laughs> Well, so that leads me to my next question. Are you part of what this change is happening? Are you part of that conversation? Are you trying to, you said about um, changing policy. Are you working on changing policy within the Air Force, within the Department of Defense on that, having those conversations? Yeah. So I look at it issue by issue. So, and I, um, My role is really more as a consultant. So I serve on the Pentagon Women's Initiative team for the Air Force, and they look at uncovering biases that contribute to women's disproportionate underrepresentation in the highest rank or in certain career fields. For example, um, there's a woman, um, Jessica Rutten, I have to get her name right. She's phenomenal. Um, And she has been looking at the height restrictions on pilots and its disproportionate Mm. impact on women being able to be pilots and how aircraft rules were made um, years ago to account for the average male height. It didn't count for racial minorities or women. And so how that's affected their representation. And so her work has resulted in the Air Force changing the height requirements for future aircraft. So the- it, it, it's changing the trajectory of the development of air weaponry. Like that's incredible. Um, I am not remotely involved in that. I am just a person who <laughs> admires it, but I'm the person that's talking with the childcare people that are like my research uncovered this childcare gap in new moms. I have some more data. I'm looking at it again. And now I see the childcare gap, the gender gap in access to childcare 
and um, some other researchers have done a, another survey that's unrelated. And so we're looking at where and how that gap is showing up so that we can recommend real policy and program solutions to fill it. Often what we see is people identify a problem, stakeholders, advocates, Congress get anxious to fix it, and there's not a, the best solution isn't revealed and considered. Mm. And then the problem is assumed fixed when it's not. So I'm the, the, the person that's trying to help uncover the how is this showing up as a problem and what's the best policy solution we should propose. Wow. That's not my assigned <laughs> job. That's what I do because I'm passionate about it. I am too. So I love that you are doing that. What, how amazing. How amazing. What a, what a gift you are giving. I feel insanely lucky, right? Like this path could have gone a million different directions. I could have gotten out. I could have not gotten selected for the PhD. I could be doing different work that I feel passionate about, but I feel like I landed in the right spot. Perfectly segue into my next question. <laughs> so what is, you know, the driving force? You know, you said you talked about um, joining the National Guard. So what was your driving force at 17 to look into that versus going down this college route and getting your PhD right out of high school? Well, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. Um, and we didn't have money for my parents to pay for school. And so, and I knew what their experiences were with debt and they worked insanely hard. Um, and I, I didn't want to not work hard. Like I wanted to work hard, but I didn't want to start off life with debt. I had a buddy that was like, Hey, I'm looking at the national guard. You should come talk to the recruiter with me. I was 16 and I was like, okay, cool. I actually talked to an army recruiter and an air force recruiter and the army recruiter was, um, pursued more. And probably because I was a defiant 16 year old, I was not interested. Right. So, <laughs> the air force was like, we don't know, we might take you. And I was like, I'll call you. <laughs> I want you. Yes. <laughs> I love it. I'm not sure you want me, but I'm going to make you want me. Right? Yeah. <laughs> now, now I need to sell you. So oh, that's too funny. So I, I joined as soon as I turned 17 and um, they paid for my undergraduate because the Illinois Veterans Grant. Um, and then I, you know, got money for GI Bill and money for uh, my drill weekends. So that paid for my undergrad. And then after 9-11, I got involuntarily activated for a year to help process. I stayed at my home station, but I was processing um, finance payments to people that were deploying. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I did that for a year while I was in school full time. So I just banked all of that money because I didn't have a life um, <laughs> outside of work and school, which is a valuable life. I get it, but not right. not, a lot. <laughs> right. not your typical twenty-something-year-old uh, life, no, right? No. Right. And so I used all that money to pay for my master's degree, and then took my commission to active duty after that. Oh, that's amazing. I love that story. <laughs> but I didn't know that I wanted to be a social worker. People ask me that too. Mm. Like, well, how did you know you wanted to be a social worker? I didn't know that. Well, how did you know? I mm. did, it just, did you just kind of fall into it or were you working in something else? And then they were like, oh, hey, why don't you take this over here? And then you're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. You know what it was, was um, in my under, I was, so I'm a first generation college student 
And so I didn't have other people to be like, this is how you should do it. So I was just writing my own playbook. Yeah. So I went to this little community college that I chose just because it was three hours home and 15 minutes from the biggest party college in the state. Like there was no strategy, none. Hey, partying is important at that age, right? (laughs) Ready to launch. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, I moved down there and in my first class, they made me take, I forget what they call those tests that help you understand your interests. Uh, well, the only one that comes to mind is ASVAB, but I think that's for the military. Yeah, it is for the military. <laughs> this one was like, do you like gardening or like it asks all oh, kinds yeah, of, yeah. it's trying to pull your interest to understand what college like majors might test. be fitting. Yeah. Yeah. A bit personality, interest, passion, talent, whatever. Um, so I filled out the thing and it came out like you would be a reasonable fit and might have interest in so- social work. And I was like, okay, cool. What does that mean? Uh, <laughs> 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 and so um, a bunch of crazy things happened where I got tagged to deploy. I put that in quotation marks for anybody on the phone um, because it was to Germany mm-hmm. um, to process people downrange to the Balkans, folks that were going to Kosovo and Bosnia. Um, and so in in the process of that, I had these results I had from my test where I'm like, I'm going to do social work. I don't know what that is, but seems like a fit. I finished the rest of my classes online from Germany. Mm. And then I met a couple of people who were social workers because I wanted to learn what that was. So I sure. asked intrusive questions. I just started approaching people. You know, a social worker, I want to know a social worker. So I found a program. I finished my BSW. And um, I realized that with a bachelor's in social work, it's really hard to find a a job that can pay the bills Mm -hmm. uh, independently. And I had that money saved up from being activated. And so I was going to go into a master's of counseling. And I mentioned it to one of my BSW professors. And she was like, why would you not do a master's in social work? And Mm -hmm. I said, I don't know. I just thought it'd be neat to have like two different degrees. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I would have thought the same thing. So I didn't know either. (laughs) She was like, you can get advanced standing and you can do it a year and a half as opposed to a two-year master's. Mm -hmm. Oh, that spoke to me. That's money we're talking about there. So I applied um, to Illinois State to their advanced standing program. And and that's how I became a social worker. It's very much by accident over and over. Mm, I love that. Mine was kind of too. So I started college for computer science. Mm Mm-hmm. And my goal was to get my PhD in computer science and move to Japan because at the time that's where technology kind of started. Yeah. And um, I did a semester and a half and was like, oh yeah, no, I'm not going to be in front of a computer all day. This is awful. (laughs) So I, you know, moved out with my girlfriends, lived off my savings and partied. So it's kind of on that same plan, right? Like, oh, where's the excitement? And so... (laughs) Then I moved. My dad said, you know, why don't you come live with me? My parents had got a divorce when I was a senior in high school. And I moved to a bigger city. And he tells me, you have a week to decide what you're going to do. you get a job or go to school. Whew. I know, right? And so I went and looked at the community college. And I sat in the parking lot. And I was like, nope, I'm not going in there. I'm not going in that building. I just came from a big box. I don't want to do that again. Mm-hmm. And the next college that I looked at was a cosmetology school. And so I thought, well, why not? I did people's hair and makeup in high school and junior mm-hmm. high for dances and parties. And sure, that sounds like fun. And maybe I'll figure out what I want to do next, you know, and go back to college at some point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, I got in there and it was just like, wait, I get it. I get to make money at doing this. This is really fun. <laughs> 
and now, you know, 27 years later, I'm still doing it, but now it's more part-time where I'm doing all the other things of coaching and um, consulting and, you know, books and, 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 and all the things. So it's just really fun to be able to, to have kind of that background of, you know, this really fun career that led me into this other career too, I, I believe. So, you know, sometimes yeah. accidents are there. I don't think, believe in accidents. I think it's all just meant designed to be your journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I firmly believe like those small bites along the way, I could have never eaten the whole apple at once. Like it just, I didn't have the patience for it. And I probably would have continued on a path that didn't fit, but those just small decisions along the way, just showing up. Yeah, 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 yeah. I and you it. just showing up like you ended up in a career that was compatible. You <laughs> right. smiled when right. you said that, like yes. you you still have fun with it. You are obviously a person who's passionate about connecting with people and you do that when you do hair, I have no doubt. Mm-hmm. Like that it's a part of, of of your personality. And I love that it can be expressed in so many different ways. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And what's really fun is that, you know, somebody asked me what I loved about doing, doing um, hair. And I said, well, I actually really love the conversations with the people. And so then they said, well, why don't you start a podcast? And I was like, huh? Well, yeah, that's a good idea. Why don't I start a podcast? <laughs> and which led me to believe it or not, um, a podcast conference where I met a gentleman after meeting 300 people I meet him on the last day and he's like, well, tell me about your coaching business. And I said, oh, I helped transform trauma into treasure. And he's like, have you thought about working with veterans? And I was like, huh, that's interesting. I, they kept showing up in my life. So I started to really pay attention to the opportunities that were around me instead of just focus on the one thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And started to notice that there's this pattern that veterans kept showing up. And so about two weeks later, later, I was actually having coffee with our, our mutual friend, Beth, and she was telling me about her new job with the business journal here locally. And the VFW was having a, um, the, the business journal and the VFW were having a networking event where they were having a panel and really talking about hiring veterans into corporate America. And I said, well, that's interesting because, uh, I think I might be supposed to be working with veterans. <laughs> But I'm not sure how. Turns out. (laughs) Yeah. And here we are uh, a year and a half later. um, And it's not just veterans. It's, you know, in military as well. And it's like, I'm not sure how my path got here. Uh, Well, I kind of know how my path got here, but I'm not sure how it was designed to get here. But it is probably the most fulfilling I've ever felt in my life is being able to really make a difference in um in military, but also in the veterans of like, where are you in your, your thinking about outside of the military, what does civilian life look like and, and things like that. And so it's just been fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really fun. I so, think that's the really fabulous thing too, about like figuring out where your talents fit and the timing. And when those things all come together in a way where everyone gets meaning from it, like how awesome, like, yeah, that's just exciting. Yes, which brings me why I call myself the chief excitement officer. Because <laughs> yeah, I, I totally agree. It is exciting. So speaking of which, what would you give advice of a, of a woman who's in high school thinking about what she should do next? 
what advice would you give her? Would you talk about maybe, you know, taking up that app to not aptitude, but kind of interest test to figure out if social works it, or would you talk to her about taking the ASVAB and looking into the military? What advice would you give at this point? I'm a person that I, I, I attribute the majority of my success to coming from a very stable family. Mm. And so like my values are rooted in how my parents raised me. And so when I talk to different people, I assume that they don't have that same foundation, right? And so the the decisions that worked for me may not make sense to another person. Mm-hmm. So I'm very reluctant to point toward one or the other. I'm, I'm, I'm most likely to, to come out with a smorgasbord of options that I'm aware of and asking them, which ones make sense for you right now and why? And how would that fit? Because they're going to know way better than me what makes sense. For some people, it's joining the military straight away. I needed that. I didn't know it, but it afforded me a great deal of structure so that I could be, I was a lazy, smart person. And the military don't let you be lazy. Right. Right. So I needed it in that order. I got lucky it happened that way. But talking to people about like, where are your resources at? For some people, they are so motivated for school and so already structured and have the resources that they have, you know, a, a fund or something that they can make that work right off and make a difference in an area that matters to them. For others, they don't know what they want to be yet. I have a 19 year old who doesn't know what she wants to be yet. And I keep trying to normalize. You shouldn't right. like literally your frontal lobe is not fully developed, right? Like you're, you're still growing as a person. I think the pressure to know what to do next is incongruent with where they're at in their development. I totally agree. And then it, I believe it shifts and please, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. Once you're out, like, you know, mid, to late thirties into forties when you're now maybe changing careers or maybe you've gotten laid off or maybe you're going through that divorce, that kind of midpoint, people call it a midlife crisis, but really it's kind of looking at it like, well, things are changing now all of a sudden. So now you have to process things differently and Mm -hmm. not, not from the frontal lobe, but from a place of what you're talking about of how does it feel? You know, how does that, what is the, what do you think is the best fit for you? Mm -hmm. And what are your resources? Yeah. Right. So for a 19 year old that doesn't have parents at home and needs to pay an apartment bill, my advice is going to be different than somebody who has the option to stay at home with supportive parents to pursue something that they're pretty confident is what they want. That the, the demands on different people at that early stage of life, I think are what really influences their trajectory. And like you said, until something's shaken up later on in life, do some people get the opportunity to reconsider? And sometimes it doesn't feel like an opportunity. Sometimes it feels like a crisis often. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. 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 What a great conversation. And we're running out of time. So um, please, if the people want to connect with you and maybe they need uh, advice on, you know, some of the topics we talked about today, being a leader or a woman in the military, maybe they need to be mentored on what to do next. How can they get in contact with you? Can they go to LinkedIn or do you have a, a website, email, anything like yes, that? Yes, I am on LinkedIn. I have to um, look up what it is. <laughs> um, but I'm also, you're, you're welcome to, I never give out my military address, but my personal email address is Erica Lee, E-R-I-K-A-L-E-E-123 at yahoo.com. And I believe that's what's connected to my LinkedIn too, but I'm under erica.l.king, I believe on there. Okay. Awesome. I'm going to look. 
one more time because I know you can probably edit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I keep trying to get better at LinkedIn. I'm also on ResearchGate. Um, all my publications are on there that helps me keep track of. I don't know how to do this. Oh, here we go. My LinkedIn profile, Erica L. King. Erica L. King. And that's Erica with a CK, correct? Nope. I'm sorry. It's Erica with just a K. Erica I always joke and say, okay. it's Erica with a K, King with a K. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. I love it. Or that. I say King, not the Queen. That's it. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. And uh, I always, it, well, it's been so much fun, so much fun to talk to with you. And I can't believe it's been two years since we first talked. So yeah. I'm so glad we got to connect again. I feel grateful. Yeah. And we're definitely going to have to stay in touch. And I always like to leave this conversation with what is your phrase, scripture, or mantra that you're living by right now? Oh, right now is a really difficult time. So I don't have another person's quote, but what I'm talking to my students, my colleagues, my mentors is just seek to connect first. Mm. There's so much judgment and anger and, and discord. Just seek to connect first. We have so much in common with people that we maybe don't have the same philosophical slant on, but our values are so more in line than we give credit. Absolutely agree. And then you use that word again, values. <laughs> I think that's just, that is an underused um, topic of conversation is values. So I'm so yeah. glad that we talked about that today. Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity. I've really enjoyed getting to hear more about your story and getting to actually see you. Yes, you too. Thank you. Take care. Don't turn this off just yet. Does the thought of collaborating and connecting with a diverse group of creative thought leaders appeal to you? Do you have a compelling story and don't know where to start? Have you ever thought about writing a book and thought about writing the whole book is overwhelming? Well, we are looking for you. We want to connect and collaborate with other podcasters, coaches, and entrepreneurs who want to gain exposure. We are looking for other people who want to co-author a book with us. You can find out more details at firestartersbookproject.com.